0: Hey there, everybody! Real me and Colon, a movie podcast listeners. Uh, This is Joel Copling, one of your one of your co-hosts, and I'm back with another installment in For Your Isolation, uh, which is designed to keep you occupied during these weird times where we're all stuck inside. Um scary time. I hope everybody out there is being safe, staying inside uh where necessary and um yeah, just just keeping keeping clean, keeping keeping sanitized and 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 what have you. Um I am not alone. I we have an old friend back. Uh Mr. Brian Subfield is on. We are here to talk about the best films of 2004 in my ongoing series just counting down the best films of you know the the first decade of the century. Um, it's crazy that this is a year that was 16 years ago, because um, <laughs> Brian wasn't born yet or something. I don't know. And <laughs> and and I I was I guess 2025. 20, um, no no, but uh, <laughs> it was a great year though. It was a great year, and I I honestly have memories of this year being the first one in which I tr- in which I started writing. Reviews, and by that I don't mean publishing or showing anybody except my parents my reviews um, and sometimes not sometimes not even my parents. Um, this was the year where i I think it was the year after I uh, discovered Ebert um, and his reviews, and I was kind of getting you know like used to watching um, Ebert and Roper. That's yeah. where I start. That's where I started with that show. Was their third year, fourth year together, and uh, then I, you know, I'd been reading Ebert's reviews for a while. I was like, you know what? I kind of want to do this. So the first review I ever wrote was in the in the year two thousand four. Uh, it was not of a two thousand four movie, but it was of Ace Ventura when nature calls. Um, <laughs> And it was a... I've, I think I've told this story on here before. Maybe not. I uh, definitely told this before somewhere, but it was it was like a three-paragraph review that didn't cover any of the plot or characters.
1: Was there any um, plot in it to begin with? <laughs> <laughs> Probably not.
0: But there were, there were characters, and I never actually mentioned Ace Ventura's name, like, other than, like, outside the context of the movie title. <laughs> and I talked about how funny it was that... There were actors who were in, and I quote, emotionally traumatic movies, not dramatic, traumatic, uh, (laughs) alongside somebody like Jim Carrey, who, you know, I hadn't seen, well, a movie that might come up um, from this particular year. I hadn't seen the Truman Show yet. I don't think, maybe I had, but I didn't really think of Jim Carrey in serious terms yet. So Yeah, it was it was an interesting year, kind of a banner year for me in terms of starting this whole process of like trying to fashion some sort of review. Uh, And it really didn't go well for a while. It wasn't until 2005 that I actually came up with a a workable model that was an actual review. I think the second one that I did was a Finding Nemo and it ended up like I I hand wrote it and it was like five full pages where I was just (laughs) I was just telling every detail of the plot. So, yeah, this was a big year for me. I was seeing more movies at a theater than I had before. Uh, My parents were very nice to me in that that (laughs) regard, bringing me to everything. Uh, Because, of course, this was the year that I turned 15. I was 14 for most of it, but it was the year that I turned 15. And, uh, yeah, I don't think – I think I saw one of these movies actually in theaters on time. Um, I caught up with the other ones later on. So yeah, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see, to see all of this uh-huh. happen. So we're going to get into it now. Um, these are our top 10 films of 2004. Brian, welcome back by the way.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Um,
0: yes. Thank you for doing this with me because I really didn't want to do these episodes alone. So <laughs> I totally this is understand. awesome.
1: Yeah. <laughs> all right. Uh, so yes. So tell us what your number 10 is. Okay, so my number 10 is kind of a relevant pick because you brought up how everyone needs to wash their hands excessively. And the main character of this film washes their hands nonstop, and that is Martin Scorsese's The Aviator. Mm, Yeah, So this follows Howard Hughes. 20 years through his life, he is played by Leonardo DiCaprio. This goes through a lot of different aspects of his life such as when he was a successful film producer, directing Hell's Angels, which went through a troubling production, if everybody knows the story about that. Uh, He was also a huge deal in the aviation world. But this also tackles the subject of his severe OCD, which is actually a very depressing thing to watch on screen. This isn't my favorite Martin Scorsese film, but what really impressed me the most was the rich depiction of the errors that this was set in you know martin scorsese when he makes a lot of his films you know in the past or whenever he's tackling a certain decade or certain period of time he usually goes in with his production design and the production design here mm-hmm. cannot be ignored it's absolutely breathtaking uh robert Richardson's cinematography unbelievable won the oscar for cinematography howard Shore score is dynamic and full of flair. It's really beautiful. I've listened to the score numerous times since I first saw this film. And the cast is really, really strong. Obviously, like I said, DiCaprio is here and he's unbelievable as Howard Hughes. But we also have Kate Blanchett in an Oscar-winning performance as Catherine Hepburn. We have Alan Alda, who was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. And this ensemble is huge. We have the likes of John C. Riley, Alec Baldwin, Jude Law, Matt Ross, Willem Dafoe, Adam Scott, Ian Holm. This cast is insane. Kate Beckinsale's in this, and she's incredible. I just really admire this film very much. My only personal problem with it is the runtime, but I could push that aside because I was so engrossed with the story from start to finish. I have to go on a limb and say, the plane crash sequence is my favorite sequence of any film that came out in 2004. Even though this isn't my favorite film that came out that year, that sequence, every time I watch it, from the editing to the cinematography to Leo's acting to the visual effects, it's really remarkable stuff. And if you guys haven't seen this film, please do check it out. It's available to stream on Stars if you guys have that. And it's hmm. my number 10 film with 2004.
0: Well, I'm gonna come back around to this one later. <laughs> uh yeah, it's it's a little it's a little higher on my list. Um but yeah, it uh, but I agree with everything you're saying. I mean it is it is really something. And um the production design in particular, I think it's some of the best ever devised for a Scorsese movie. I agree. Which which is saying something. He's he's had some movies with some pretty you know, like big um uh, design oh, yeah. moments. Um you know, I think of like Gangs of New York as well.
1: It did win the. Um, it and did win the Art Direction. It did,
0: Oscar. yes, and that was a, that was a deserved win of the of the movies on that list. I think I know every one of them, and I think I've seen most of them. And I and I would have given it to this. I um,
1: agree.
0: Yeah, and it's some of the best cinematography too. I think he won. F-
1: he did. I think He won for this. He yeah,
0: did. Robert R- Robert Richardson. So, um, yeah, it's uh, it is fabulous, and I'll get I'll get I'll get to it on my list. <laughs> uh my number 10 i am taking a sharp left turn uh toward big rambunctious studio comedy and this is a movie that i just caught up with this week (laughs) um and people are probably i I actually mentioned this on my uh on my 2005 episode because one of the co-stars is the star of one of my favorite movies of 2005 and I mentioned that, you know, this was a new viewing for me. So I understand if listeners out there are like, you just saw Anchorman, the legend of Ron Burgundy (laughs) this week in your 30th year of, or 30, almost 31st year of existence. And I understand like, if you can't take me seriously, I totally get it. Um, But yes, I do. I do have Anchorman on my top 10 and it's really not surprising because Step Brothers nearly made my 2008 list. Mm. Um, you know, I really like Talladega Nights and the other guys as well. Maybe not as much as these other two. But, um, but they're all really strong comedies. And this one might be – might well, I, I, I hesitate to say that it's better than Step Brothers, but it's probably just as consistently funny. I think that Step Brothers had a heart to it that maybe this one – doesn't really need and and doesn't have yeah in in terms of like it's really not doing anything serious um but basically this one is about ron burgundy who is a lead anchor at a news uh channel in the 1970s and it's kind of uh thrown into chaos (laughs) which is funny to say that but (laughs) it's thrown into chaos by the introduction of a woman uh anchor which no one likes that idea so uh, her name is Veronica Corningstone. She's played by uh, Christina Applegate. And they just have to deal with that, the, the fact that she's making her mark. One thing that surprised me is that for a big, rambunctious studio comedy, it was surprisingly forward thinking when it came to that. Yeah. Uh, because she really is a character with agency of her own. It's not really defining her by her relationship. These men—it's really defining the men by their relationship with her, which is an interesting reversal on that. And it's—it's not something I anticipated of this movie, um, just from afar, and uh, just on top. That's like the only thing that's really relevant about this, Um, because otherwise it's completely irreverent. It's you know it's famous for having, you know, an almost an entire supporting cast of comic relief characters that are offsetting the main character's sincerity. And I say that with quotes. You know, like Brick Tamland, played by Steve Carell, who is <laughs> never, who is never unfunny, and that is a rare thing to have a to have a side character who's supposed to be funny and always is. That's really, really, really good. Uh, but also Paul Rudd, David Koechner, uh, it just is a fantastic. Fred Ward is hysterical.
1: Fantastic.
0: Yeah, I love him. Uh, every time it cuts to him on the phone. And he's saying something increasingly more dire about his, (laughs) his relationship with his son and his son's relationship with the world around him. It it just is absolutely hilarious. And again, irreverent, just, you know, we underrate comedy when it comes to top 10 lists for a year um, uh, for any specific year, I think. And I try to put one on when, when, when I can. And this is, uh, I don't know if it's the funniest. Well, it's the most consistently funny movie. It's not the only comedy on my list. But it is, it is probably the most consistently funny comedy on my list. And for that reason, yeah, I have it at my number 10. Um, are we going to be getting to this one later on for you?
1: Uh, yes, we are. We're going to pass on this one.
0: Okay. Okay. All right. Well, then that brings us around to your number nine.
1: So my number nine, I have something to tell you, Joel, about your hosting skills. Because 60% of the time, it works every time. Because Anchorman is my number nine.
0: (laughs) Oh, nice. Okay.
1: So I had seen this film years ago when I was in high school. And everyone was talking about it. And I'm like, okay, I'll watch the movie. I hope it isn't overhyped or anything. And it honestly lived up to the hype. And each time I watch it, it gets funnier and funnier. When you had texted me this week that this was the first time you had ever seen it. First of all, I had no idea that you even hadn't seen it to begin with. So I was Mm -hmm, really shocked. And I'm I'm glad that you liked it a lot. It genuinely is funny from start to finish. And I have to say this right now just to get it out of the way. Steve Carell is Brick. I went back and forth with this because I wasn't sure who my favorite supporting comedic performance was in 2004. I was going back and forth with Brick and Damien from Mean Girls. Mm. But I realized in my head Steve Carell is brick. I mean, every time he speaks a word, no matter what he says or what he does, even if it's a, quote, normal, unquote, saying that he's saying, (laughs) um, it just makes me pee my pants. He is unbelievably funny in this film. Where'd you get those clothes? At the toilet store? His his delivery of every line that he has is gold. It's comedy gold. (laughs)
0: And I have no idea. I mean, I, I kind of know because I've, I'm a big fan of The Office. And yeah, I so have I. Been, I've been listening to The Office Ladies podcast, which is hosted by um, Jenna Fisher and Andrew Kinsey. Yeah, really good. We're all caught up. My mom and I are listening to it. And we're all caught up. And we get some, like, little hints about Steve Carell's process. And I just have no idea how anyone survived this shoot. Because one thing that he likes to do is he likes he really, 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 really likes to make everyone else laugh. And he keeps going with like some some comic idea yeah. until somebody breaks and I have no idea how they shot. This oh, movie. I don't know how they because did it either. I, <laughs> because I I just think about the thing where like He's eating like a what is it like a coffee filter? It's like he he
1: he calls it a falafel hot dog thing with
0: falafel. (laughs) Anyway,
1: I just stuff like that. I mean, it
0: it just you think about it and you laugh, and that's the mark of a great
1: comedy. And I, I truly.
0: And this and this follows. I mean, even though it's before the office, it really follows in the tradition of something like the office, which is. Throw hundreds of ideas at the wall to see what stick. Yeah, and that's the thing with comedy. That's what you have to do. And you know, with like Talladega knights and the other guys, I thought that it was about a seven out of ten ratio, which is pretty good. Yeah, yeah which means I I liked the movie pretty well. And it, they also had other other aspects that you know performances worked and all of that. And for this one and Step Brothers, it's at least nine out of ten. And you know, with any comedy, you're going to have a couple of bad ideas get thrown in there but this is so far like outnumbers all of any bad ideas it has yeah and that you know it's like 95 minutes long i watched the unrated cut for those interested um yeah which is way better and (laughs) it's funny
1: because the scene
0: the scene where he lets the f word loose oh my god (laughs) it's great but it's funny that you bring it up because like
1: they had a companion film made called wake up ron burgundy the lost movie where they had a bunch of outtakes and abandoned subplots i haven't seen it so Mm. i'm sure yeah i need to look that up hilarious but yeah uh, i'll have to
0: look that up because i I did have a great time with this yeah like i was saying it's like it's 99 it's 95 minutes i definitely Uh, left it
1: it flies by quickly yeah pace it's paced very well it's It's really powerful it's clever it's really yeah. great. And all the cameos that are in the movie <laughs> and all the small roles. Like, Joel, when you text me, you're like, Seth Rogen? Oh, my God. Yes.
0: <laughs> I wasn't – I had no idea about that. I never knew that. And so that was really funny. I, I never had that spoiled for me.
1: Yeah. Um, so it's, it's just so good. It's, it's great. It's one of the best comedies I've ever seen. It holds up mm. very well. You know, the fact that this movie is almost 20 years old, and it, it really holds up very well. It's insane. Yeah. And, you know, it's just funny when you think about it, because when you look at Adam McKay now with the big short advice, you're like the same guy did not make Anchorman. Right. But it turns out he did. So it's yeah, it's
0: such it's a different, uh, different mode for. Him. Oh, absolutely. Um, but yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I he's, he's certainly tapping into a different skill set. And I like those, that. So. I
1: like that he's doing that. Yeah. I wasn't big on Vice. I know you were, but I love mm-hmm. the big short. And I'm always for whenever comedic filmmakers step out of their comfort zone to do something completely different. And oh, yeah. yeah, Anchorman is fantastic. And if you guys haven't seen it, you're going to be shipped to the toilet store. That I'm just, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's what's going to have to happen.
0: All right. Well, we're moving from your number nine, which is my number 10 and a major comedy to another major comedy on my list. My number nine is Mean Girls, uh, which I just rewatched this week.
1: I, and... just re- I rewatched it <laughs> 20 minutes before I hopped on. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
0: There we go. Uh, I I was, you know, I had not seen this since 2005. So I had a weird relationship with this. Um, I I liked it when I saw it in 2005. Um, I had seen, I had gone to theaters to see it with my parents who aren't big on, you know, relatively raunchy stuff. So they're like, eh, no, let's go. So we walked out and I wouldn't have done that myself, but we did. And so I saw it later on. I think I watched it with my cousin or something. And then I just didn't watch it again. And even though I liked it, it wasn't one of those things that was a, you know, a regular viewing for me, which I know it is for many, 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 many people. Um, but, you know, watching again was like watching a new movie. I had forgotten how, like, how much this movie taps into the click culture of a certain generation. Now it's changed dramatically since 2004, Um, You know, we're in an an age of Instagram and Tumblr and social media in general and smartphones. And I think that this movie would look different now. But I think that in some other ways, it's actually remained pretty universal. Um, I think that the click culture is the same thing now, just with new toys. And I think that this movie really taps into that. Uh, The story follows Katie, played by Lindsay Lohan. Who has just uh, moved to or moved back to America after spending 12 years in Africa, and uh, she joins a school and is immediately kind of ushered into this clique led by Regina George, played by an early um, an early performance from Rachel McAdams, um, and her two lackeys played by Lacey Chabert and Amanda Seyfried. Um, meanwhile, she has also developed friendships with a couple of outcasts. Played by Lizzie Kaplan and Daniel Franzese. Uh, or Franzese. I, I don't know how to say his name, sorry. <laughs> uh, Franzese? I, I'm not sure. Franz? Must be yeah. something like that. Some Something. Um, and also falls for Regina's ex-boyfriend. Uh, played by Jonathan Bennett. Um, this movie is also directed by Mark Waters. Who's kind of fallen out of favor with Hollywood yeah. recently. He did Mr. Popper's Penguins. And then I don't think he's directed anything else. Uh, he he um, made
1: Bad Santa 2. Oh, well, that's
0: unfortunate yeah uh, so <laughs> i never saw that uh, but it's also from a from a script by tina fey who has a uh a minor supporting role here as a math teacher um it's also got a pitch perfect tim meadows yes uh you mentioned your favorite comedic supporting performance from 2004 and yes even more than than steve carell in anchorman tim meadows in this movie is oh, so he's,
1: he's fantastic funny. i can keep There's, you here all night we can't keep the passport <laughs> i will keep you here till, 4:00. You here till four <laughs> and the way that
0: he he stays completely stone stone faced during that little bit is absolutely tim meadow, perfect. Tim meadow. Perfect. he's a legend he's a legend he's one of my favorite comic actors and i i i love that i love that about him and uh, t- Amy Amy Poehler comes into it. Uh, she's fantastic. It's a perfectly cast movie from top to bottom. I agree. Um, right down to uh, the parents uh, even, I think, are having fun here. Neil, Neil Flynn and, and guest Dyer. I, it just is such a perceptive movie about high school life. Uh, this is a movie that uses narration perfectly. I find that filmmakers really rely on narration in commonly pretty like flimsy and and excuse driven ways, this one complements what's going on without just telling us what's going on, which I think is really it's it's allowing us a a view into Katie's mindset. It's not just reiterating what's on the screen, and that's that's what I have not uh, found useful in a lot of movies, um, even movies I've liked like The Descendants, uh, is one of the worst examples of on of narration I can think of, just because it's. It's just telling us what's happening, um, uh, at least for like 15 minutes. It's completely unnecessary. This movie uses it throughout, and it's all about complementing the images, and I love that. Um, and it's just, you know, it's com- it's confidently directed, uh, it's edited really well, it's structured really well. Um, and Lindsay Lohan, really solid performance. I think that Rachel McAdams deserved best supporting actress consideration for this. I agree there's it isn't just a really rock solid like comic portrayal of the mean girl there's a lot of dimension there to her character there's a lot and maybe you know whether or not it's on screen i think even if it's mcadams adding that in i think it is on the page too because i think tina Fey is a really good writer it's really coming through in the character i also like Lacey chabert a lot on this viewing uh as gretchen who there's a lot of dimension her too uh i think Um, you don't really expect that of the, of the mean girls lackey. Um, and yeah, it's just, everybody's having fun, but there's also a degree of sincerity to this that I think is just really disarming. So yeah, I, I I love this movie and it is my number nine. Is this one going to be on your list or?
1: It's actually right outside the list. It's in the 11 to 15 spots. Totally. I love Mean Girls. I yeah. remember again, this was another one where everybody in my high school was telling me to watch it. And I had sat <laughs> right. down to watch it, and it really blew me away. I was very surprised by it. Yeah, I, again, I think it's
0: it's it's way it's better than it really even needed to be. <laughs> oh, I agree. I agree.
1: I agree. there's
0: a, there's another high school movie on my list that that is that is that same way. I think <laughs> and it, it's it's uh, yeah. I I just the two movies this year that were that were high school movies I'll get to the other one later yeah. on much later on
1: yeah I, um, I really was blown away by this I love the screenplay yeah. I think the screenplay should have been nominated for best adapted screenplay mm, it wouldn't I, have won but you know right but I <laughs> it, was, it was it was nominated
0: by like, the it was nominated by the writers
1: guild which well they're cool. smart they're very smart yeah they're very smart yeah. um, now
0: I think that a lot of that actually had to do with eligibilities it probably wouldn't mm, have made it if, if a bunch of the stuff that wasn't eligible was eligible yeah because uh, like kill bill volume two wouldn't have been eligible so you know stuff like that happens and oh yeah um so maybe it wouldn't have made it but i'm glad it did
1: yeah as am i um yeah i do love it a lot i rewatch it a lot today was the first time i've seen it i think since i was a senior in high school i always Hmm. try to watch on october 3rd like everyone tells me to but i can't (laughs) do it i just can't do it Right. But yeah, it's fantastic. Doesn't always doesn't always work out. Yeah. And it's fantastic. It was actually on my list at one point. But then when I started looking into my list, I'm like, there are 10 films that I like more than Mean Girls, but I still love it a lot. And it's great. Totally
0: get it. Totally get it. All right. Well, we're up to your number eight.
1: All right. So now we're going with another comedy. Uh, (laughs) My number eight is Shaun of the Dead. Uh, Edgar Wright's first entry of his fantastic, if you even want to call it an official trilogy, the Three Flavors Cornetto Trilogy. Now, this stars Simon Pegg and Nick Frost as Sean and Ed, two flatmates who live in London that are caught in the middle of an, of a zombie apocalypse. And they have to find a way to take refugees refuge, wow, I can't talk, forgive me, (laughs) in a local pub with their loved ones, including Sean's girlfriend, played by Kate Ashfield, Sean's mother, played by Penelope Wilton, and two other people, played by Lucy Davis and Dylan Moran. This film is forensic, it's quick, it's sharp, it's witty, it's bloody brilliant, it's fantastic. Edgar Wright is one of my favorite filmmakers working today. I've loved all the films he's directed. Hot Fuzz, The World's End, Scott Pilgrim vs. The World, and most recently, Baby Driver, and I'm obviously really excited for Last Night in Soho, whenever that comes out. I, before I watched Shaun of the Dead, I wasn't really keen on British comedy. I don't remember the first time I saw this. I actually think it might have been when The World's End came out, so I caught mm-hmm. up on this and Hot Fuzz. And, I don't know, just something about the writing from Edgar Wright, and Simon Pegg, they co-wrote the whole trilogy together, which I think is wonderful. Just something about it works very well, and you don't have to be from England to admire British comedy. If the comedy is done well, then it's good comedy, and the comedy here is fantastic. The chemistry between Pegg and Nick Frost is unbelievable. They're hilarious together. They're always a delight to watch together, and that goes with um, saying about Hot Fuzz and The World's End. Like, all three of these films, they're so much fun to watch on screen. They have wonderful chemistry, and, you know, I really love the camaraderie between the two characters. Like, they're both idiots, essentially, but Ed is a big, buffoon idiot. He is ridiculous. <laughs> he does a lot of ridiculous things. It's like that sequence when they're about to go into the pub you know, they disguised themselves as zombies. They were doing very well. And then all of a sudden, when you think everything's going to go well, his phone rings and just answer it it's so nonchalant. And it's hysterical. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's wonderful. It's truly wonderful. E- everything about this film works very well for me. I can watch it over and over again. It's not my personal favorite of the trilogy. My favorite has always been Hot Fuzz. But, like, this is probably my second favorite. The world's end is my least favorite. But this is all around a great trilogy that cannot be... Tossed aside when talking about the best trilogies in film. Mm. Shaun of the Dead is just a delight to watch. And, you know, I'm not going to spoil what happens, obviously, if anyone hasn't seen it. But there are moments that, I'm not going to lie, maybe shed a tear. And usually when you incorporate dramatic moments in a comedy, you have to do it flawlessly. And I felt they were handled really, really well and very maturely. So you have to give credit to Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg for that. So, yeah, Shaun of the Dead is my number eight.
0: Well, this is sort of the same situation with Mean Girls for you. It's right outside my list, but I do love it. Um, and I, I'm a World's End guy when it comes to the Cornetto, Cornetto trilogy. That's my favorite. Um, I just think that there's a little bit of something extra about that movie that maybe yeah. isn't really missing. It's just less less prevalent. in these in the other two, but yeah. uh, but I love I love Edgar Wright. I mean, I've made that clear on this podcast before. I'm a huge fan of his filmmaking style. His sensibilities, uh, the the humor that he is able to tap into. I mean, it was an interesting case study looking at this and Dawn of the Dead coming out in the same year, the yeah. Zack Snyder's remake, because that one's also making fun in a certain way of its own like original <laughs> movie. This one is just making outright just parody of it, which I, I think is hilarious. And the ways that it does that by but you know, by also giving us sincere characters who are worth caring about is just Absolutely. really, really unique and notable uh, for sure. So definitely a big fan of that one. Um, my number eight is uh, from another great trilogy, although it has had a couple of movies after it, um, although I consider three of them to be a direct trilogy, um, and that is The Bourne Supremacy uh, from director Paul Greengrass. Uh, this is um, obviously a follow-up to Doug Lyman's 2002 original, Uh, starring Matt Damon as Jason Bourne, a CIA operative who uh, has lost his memory. And in the second movie is putting the pieces together or is at least beginning to do that. And um, it follows uh, him as he is basically, uh, uh, you know, performing sort of an act of vengeance against the girl that he meets in the first film, played by Franco Patente, uh, who gets killed in the opening sequences of the second one and is uh, he basically is trying to uh survive but of course is being you know kind of uh weeded out by this secretive organization um within the CIA that that wants him to just be the tool that they that they uh designed him to be essentially and what i love about this movie is it's about that search it's very much a middle chapter but it's but it's a middle chapter in a in a tremendously Entertaining and exciting and suspenseful trilogy that um, has no pre- pretenses about being anything else. Uh, it's it's this is an espionage story, no, nothing else. But it has such great like forward motion to it. Um, the the action sequences, the um, the various hand to hand. I mean, he has this bit of hand to hand combat with uh, with a, a another operative. Um, supposedly, the only other um, agent like him, played by Martin Sokus from the uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, um, who or cho- Chokus, Chokus, I think that's how you say it. Um, and he, it, it comes down to a fight between the other guy who has a knife and Jason who has a rolled up newspaper. And I I mean, that kind of setup is what you're dealing with, with these movies, where it's just an incredibly capable agent. It's Matt Damon in just perfect, you know, movie star roles as this guy who is just 12 steps ahead of everybody else in terms of, you know, how to clock a situation, how to how to plan for for some combat gone awry. I, I just I love these movies. They are they are magnetic. They are imminently watchable. I could put them on at any time. Have a great time, and suddenly two hours have passed. Um, non pre, no pretenses, no nothing like that. Um, there's you know a little bit of an emotional component, but there's no there's no like pretending that there's some extra component beneath the the surface of the story. All it is is it's espionage. It's a smart person outwitting people who think they're smarter than him and have trained him way too well uh, and allowed him to defeat them. It just is fantastic. Uh, yeah, I I love this movie, and it's my favorite of the Bourne movies. Um, so I don't think any of the other ones are going to show up on a list. Uh, I mean, there's only one. <laughs> there's only one left, but um, I don't think it's on that list. But it is. They're all fantastic, and um, yeah. So that is my number eight. Is the Bourne Supremacy? I love this movie.
1: That's um, a very interesting choice. Have you interesting choice? Have you seen these? I I have seen these. I actually got chased to watch the trilogy right before oh. Jason Bourne came out in 2016. Okay. Yeah, I I love this trilogy. I haven't seen these films in forever since Jason Bourne had come out. Mm. Um, I went. I always went back and forth with this and Ultima being my favorite. I think I put Ultimaeum slightly mm. above it because the story was more high octane. The editing, the film, the filmmaking of the of these films, especially this and ultimatum since Paul Greengrass stepped up Mm -hmm. it's unbelievable stuff I know a lot of people may have a problem with the shaky cam motion and I get it in some movies it doesn't work but somehow with these films they work so well yeah it's incredible and Matt Damon you know it's funny because um I think before this trilogy had started no one ever pictured Matt Damon to be an action movie star right (laughs) and yet he did and yet he jumped into that so perfectly I could pretty much he could pretty much do any role that he's given and yeah I I love these films Supremacy was very interesting and I feel that if I do watch it again I do plan on rewatching this trilogy sometime in the near future it will all feel new to me because I've only seen these films twice each I believe I haven't really seen them that many times mm. so yeah I do like the Bourne films quite a lot I think that if I had put Supremacy on my best Jurassic four list. It would probably be in like the 15 to 20 spot, the 16 to 20 spots. So it would still be there. It's still great. And I love it. Right. Right. Because I have no recollection of it really. That's why I didn't put it on my list. I was planning on rewatching it, but I was like, Oh, I'm going to have to rewatch the first one. And then I'm going to watch this one. Then I'm going to want to watch the third one. So it's like, (laughs) I just couldn't, I was watching, I've watched probably like 20 movies in the last 10 days, people. It's, it's insane.
0: (laughs) So <laughs> the thing, the things he does for, for love. All right. Uh, <laughs> all right. So we're up to your number seven.
1: Okay. So my number seven is probably going to be the worst reviewed film on this list. Now, keep in mind to the people listening uh, listeners, this isn't a terribly reviewed film, but when you look at the films from this filmmaker, it is isn't regarded as one of their best films. So in 2004, Steven Spielberg released The Terminal. This starred Tom Hanks as an Eastern European man named Victor Noworski, who was traveling from the country, and this is a fictional country, by the way, called Krakosia. He was traveling to New York City for reasons I'm not going to spoil. That's a very pivotal part mm, of the story yeah. that I don't want to touch upon. And, very, and, very,
0: and very moving sequence, too. Very to touching, very yeah.
1: moving sequence. It's lovely. It made me cry. I just cry about it every time I think about it. So when he arrives in New York, his passport gets denied to let him enter into the United States. And that's because while he was flying in the air, his country was under the leadership of a military coup. So he has no country, he has nowhere to go, and he is told to stay in the terminal at JFK. Now, a lot of people, when talking about Steven Spielberg, they never talk about the Terminal. I think this is the most underappreciated film with his entire filmography. That may be a bit of a stretch because there are plenty of other films that he's directed that a lot of people don't talk talk about. But this is one that doesn't really get enough recognition as it should. It's not the best Steven Spielberg movie, of course, but it's so charming and so likable. And Tom Hanks, despite his accent being a little hard to get into at first, he's just so charming to watch. You feel for this character. You know, he barely speaks English. He has no idea what to do. His money is not acceptable. He doesn't know what to do. So the ways that he keeps himself occupied, he goes through a few silly shenanigans throughout the course of the film. Um, You know, like he moves around cards. He gets all these coins and there's a lot of product placement in this movie, but I'll push that aside. Um, But during all this too, he meets a flight attendant played, Wonderfully by Kafrazia Jones, who is just so gorgeous in this film. I mean, oh my goodness, she is breathtaking to look at in this film. It's just great. And then he befriends a few employees from the airport, played by Diego Luna, Cheek McBride, and I'm I'm sorry for how I pronounce this Kumar palana
0: I think oh, I think great. that's right. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Yeah,
1: every everyone's great. And then in the midst of all this, we have an antagonist played. Named, i'm sorry his name is frank dixon and he is played by stanley tucci who i just have to point out i was gonna keep count of this but i don't know if you noticed this joel during the movie but there are many sequences where he takes off his glasses to wipe them off that's like a common habit he Mm -hmm. has throughout the movie i don't know if it's just me but i find that to be pretty hilarious Mm -hmm. stanley tucci has never really been in a lot of comedies that i've seen I thought he was so freaking funny yeah. in this film. He was really great. Great supporting role. Very unlikable character. But at the same time you gotta realize that he is just doing his yeah, job, you know. That's that's he, the
0: key, is that they don't is that they don't make him like super antagonistic. All he is I mean, he's he's concerned about everybody in his in his terminal and He's basically just kind of annoyed by this guy. He's almost annoyed in an, this is a really cute way, (laughs) almost, but he's just, he's just annoyed and he wants, and he wants him to make the decision that would be better for the terminal, (laughs) but he, but maybe not better for himself and go out and get arrested. That's the, that would be the thing. So yeah, I, but Tucci plays it so smart as this guy who's just annoyed. That's, that's all he is. Yeah.
1: He is. And my favorite sequence with him is when he's like watching Victor from the cameras and then Victor starts to notice that the cameras are looking at him. So like, he like moves around and it's really, really entertaining. And all of a sudden Victor pops out of nowhere and just goes, I wait. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it, it's great. Yeah. It's a great film. Uh, Spielberg wanted to make this after Catch Me If You Can because he wanted to make a film that could make people laugh and cry and feel good about the world. And that's just a genuine mm-hmm. thing. With Spielberg, you know, he usually doesn't make films like this. He hasn't really done a lot of comedies to begin with. So it was a refreshing thing to see him do a simple film like this. And I would love for him to be in comedy, but that's probably never going
0: to happen. And then when he he does, he usually gets backlash for it. I
1: know, and it's ridiculous because 1941 was a comedy. I've never seen it, but a lot of people call that one of his worst films. But, you know, it's nice when he does comedy. And I thought this story was genuine. It was very heartfelt. It was touching and it was moving. It was a little long. It didn't have to be as long as it was. But all in all, it's a very cute film. It's, it's very lovely. And it's one of my favorites of Spielberg's filmography. I can watch this over and over again. I'm just so charmed by this. We Especially now with what's going on in the world, we need to watch movies like mm-hmm. this. We need to keep ourselves entertained with films like this. I don't think it's available anywhere to stream. But if you guys haven't had the chance, I would say rent this film. It's really worth the watch. It may not be the best Steven Spielberg movie. And again, as I said, it's not his best film, but it's such a delight to watch. Tom Hanks is likable. The entire film is just really, really touching. And yeah, I love it. It's my number seven.
0: Well, I love it too. And this is probably like number 11 or 12 for me. Um, I, I do love this movie. I mean, it's, it's in the tradition of Frank Capra. It's very light very very light there's really i mean other than the the reason that he's come to new york there's really nothing heavy about it um it's just pleasant it's just a pleasant watch and I think that we again I, you know I was talking about that with anchorman I think we underrate that when we come when it comes to like top ten lists because we want to have what's the most what's the most consequential viewing experience that we've had and I think that this one you know even if it isn't like super consequential it is really well done and it moves at a pace that's that is pleasant and it, and you're watching something that is, that is enjoyable and it's really easy to underrate that experience. It's under, it's easy to underrate a filmmaker who knows exactly what he's doing. Even Spielberg. Um, You know, I love Hanks. The, the, the accent's silly, but that's fine. And uh, you know, like I said, Stanley Tucci's great. I love everybody else in this. I love that they built this place. This is a real, a really impressive bit of production design because it's a, it's a working terminal uh, just with no planes and nothing behind the concession stand (laughs) or or not the the concession like places, you know?
1: Yeah. They built it on the massive theater at an LA airport and it's impressive. Yeah.
0: Very much. So they just rented it out for a few weeks and then, and then they shot on it and they made, and they made it a working thing. (laughs) I mean, it is really impressive. Um, So yeah. uh, But I am a big fan. It just, you know, Missed my list. But my number seven is a movie I know is going to be on your list later. It's going to be in our second part of the show. Um, and that is the sleek, cool, sexy, freaking awesome collateral from director Michael Mann uh, from a script by Stuart Beatty. And it basically stars Jamie Foxx as this cab driver who finds himself the hostage of a contract killer played by Tom Cruise in an, uh, sort of an against type role um, guess he kind of makes his rounds and performs his hits uh, during this very very long night, that uh, that doesn't end so well. And meanwhile, there's you know uh, a woman named Annie, played by Jada Pickett Smith, who kind of gets caught up in it. Uh, there's also um, um, an early role for Javier Bardem for those with keen eyes. There's Mark Ruffalo, Peter Berg has a role in it. Of all of Peter all Park, people, yeah, uh, yeah, Irma P. Hall even. Uh, but, yeah, I, yeah. Uh, Barry Shabaka who is also I th- in, the yeah, in the terminal. Yeah, he's in that's the right. terminal. That's right. He's one of the um, uh, security people.
1: He's like, he's like He was um, Stanley Tucci's essentially right hand. Yeah, that's hand right. That's right. Time, that's right. So. That's what
0: he was. Um, yeah, I, I love this movie. I've loved this movie ever since I saw it. I saw it first on DVD. My parents and I decided to check it out. Um, we all really enjoyed it, even my mom, which is – kind of weird cuz it's you know not a it's a it's an R-rated movie. Um and I love Tom Cruise in this movie. So um I. he is so confident uh and so magnetic as a movie star that to see him take on this role it's like he doesn't miss a step. Yet what he does then is he kind of twists his likable persona just a little bit to the right or to the left, however, whichever direction. Um, and suddenly he's, he's, you know, this contract killer who is, who is <laughs> you know, unforgiving. I, I, I love it. I love the cinematography. Uh, it's Dion Beebe, right, I think, uh, who did the cinematography for uh,
1: this? It's, um, it was a co-cinematography um, crew, Dion Beebe and Paul Cameron.
0: Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, Paul Cameron. Uh, I love him too. And James Newton Howard did the score, really good score. Um, Very, very, uh, very nice score. Um, And the editing, the editing from, from Jim Miller, Paul Rebell, uh, just is the action sequences in this. You know, I mentioned um, Public Enemies on my 2009 list. I mentioned Miami Vice on my 2006 list. And I will get to Ali when we get to my 2001 list. (laughs) So clearly I like two thousand zero Michael Mann where, a lot of other people don't tend to with a couple of his movies in this period. Um, and I think that his filmmaking is second to none within the skills that he has. That just the things that he does, nobody does like Michael Mann, which is, you know, build a world. He's, he's not interested in, in challenging you with a complex story. And really, this story isn't all that complex. It's just a, a series of events over the course of a night. But what he's interested in is just assaulting you, but not in an, I say assaulting you, not in an empty way, but he's just interested in putting you in this atmospheric LA that is uh, beautifully shot and in it is this nasty, violent story. And that's what he, that's what he does. He, he is sort of, this is sort of, basically 2004's answer to something like drive um, maybe a yeah. little maybe a little less of a um, uh, like a, a little less sleek than that if you know what I mean it's a, a little less I mean the, mm-hmm. it's digital cinematography but it's not like the modern day version of di- digital cinematography it's not smooth and clean it's very you know, it's very rugged and it fits this story really well but I just love the style I love the performances I love how how briskly this thing moves um it is it is aces all the way through i don't know why it's only my number seven but you know that's how these he's these lists shake out i know uh, i know i know Brad's like you should have a high but um uh, it <laughs> it's higher. higher it's much higher for
1: you <laughs> at least it's at least right, it's right. on your list i know it's though.
0: much higher for you so uh,
1: <laughs> yes, yes we'll move on
0: to your number six <laughs>
1: Okay, so my number six, I'm not sure if this is on your list, but I'm going to be shocked if it isn't because you're a big fan of this franchise. My number six is Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. So, <laughs> I'm not gonna Harry say anything Potter yet, so. and the Prisoner <laughs> of Azkaban. Go ahead. <laughs> so, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Obviously, this is the third film in the franchise. Obviously, following Harry, Ron, and Hermione as they're entering their third year at Hogwarts. While all this is going on, they find out that a prisoner named Sirius Black, played by Gary Altman, has escaped from Azkaban. First prisoner to ever escape from Azkaban. No one has ever done that before. He was in prison for 12 years. And you gotta keep this in mind. For those of you who pay attention to the timeline of Harry Potter, 12 years prior was when Harry's parents were killed. Now, Sirius Black is not the one who had killed Harry's parents, but there is speculation that he was involved with the murder of Harry's parents. So, while Harry, Ron, and Hermione are, you know, being all teenagers and everything and in puberty and everything, they gotta make sure that they're safe from Sirius Black coming to Hogwarts and potentially killing them and as well as everybody else. Now, Harry Potter, facts about me, it's my favorite film franchise of all time, so people are probably like, why isn't this higher on your list? Well, there are five other <laughs> films I like more than this, but... Um, preserve Azkaban. I always go back and forth with definitely house part two as saying that this is my favorite of the franchise. It's really difficult because I love every film in, in this series, even the dated Sorcerer's stone or the dated chamber of secrets. Those are great to me. Those mean a lot to me. Those have meant a lot to me since I was a kid and they mean a lot to me. Now it's crazy to believe that this franchise turns 20 years old next year. That's insane to me. That's crazy because I grew up with this franchise it's wonderful. Prisoner of Basketball, though, took a different approach. The first two films, which were helmed by Christopher, Chris Columbus, not Christopher Columbus, that's the guy that would be That would be weird. Chris that Columbus. Weird. <laughs> yeah, that would be very weird. Uh, Chris, Chris Columbus's helmed Harry Potter films. Uh, they were very kid-friendly compared to the rest of the series. So when Alfonso Cuaron stepped in to direct this one, it got darker, it got deeper, it was more emotional. It was more powerful. And it still had that charm that was brought from the first two films. I think this is an impressive directorial effort for Karan. I don't think it's the best film he's ever made. But this just shows the fantastic strain of films that he's made. I Again, this is like an ego right where I've loved pretty much everything Alfonso Karan has made. From this, Children of Men, which Joel brought up on the 2006 episode... Gravity, Roma, Itumama Tambien, A Little Princess, everything this guy makes. He's just so meticulous with how he directs stuff. And I thought it was so impressive how he stepped into the franchise and did his thing. And it was wonderful. It was a very dark story. It was very emotionally powerful. And he nailed it perfectly. And the stakes are very high in this film. There's a lot of gut-wrenchingly tense scenes in this film, one of them being the first introduction to the mentors on the train when they're, are, when they're riding to school Intense, just wonderful cinematography-wise. John Williams' score, how quiet it is and everything, and it's, it's terrifying. It's, it terrified me when I was a kid. This is ironically also the only film on this list that I saw in theaters. So everything else on here I didn't see when it came out. But this I saw when it came out because, you know, Harry Potter. I then think about the Quidditch scene in this film, which remains my favorite Quidditch sequence in the entire series. In the rain, it is friggin' scary. I mean, having them play Quidditch in the rain, I'm sorry. Listen, I know it's just a I know it's just a story and everything. I know it's fiction, but come on. Common sense, people. I mean, is that safe? I don't know. But, you know. Um, yeah, that's all great. And the new additions that they brought into the cast are really strong. We have, as I said, Gary Oldman as Sirius Black, who wasn't the original, who wasn't mm. who J.K. Rowling wanted to play Sirius Black. She wanted Dale Day Lewis, but he didn't want to be a part of it. So then they got Gary Oldman, who I feel is fantastic, probably my favorite acting performance in the entire franchise outside the main trio. He's incredible serious black there's so much levity to him and so much range to him the sequence where he first meets harry you know in the whopping willow and he just freaks out it's really depressing it's very terrifying and it makes my jaw drop when mm-hmm. he just screams from the top of his lungs. it's terrifying to watch and then the new other additions that we have to this series include david Flails as remus lupin who is fantastic Again, another great performance. And then Timothy Spall as Peter Pettigrew. Not going to describe much of him, but that was just a very nice addition. And Emma Thompson as Professor Charolani. But also we have Michael Gambon stepping in as Dumbledore since Richard Harris had passed away before Chamber of Secrets was released in theaters. So obviously he wasn't and, able to And, and insulted
0: uh, and. Ian McKellen in life, so he decided not to do it. Uh, because they went to him first. Yeah. But,
1: uh... <laughs> yeah, oh, man. It's it's funny, because... It's funny, because I had seen these films before Lord of the Reigns, so when I watched Lord of the Reigns, so I'm like, oh, this guy just reminds me of Michael <laughs> Gambit, him. but it's not him. He's... It's, it Ian, Ian McKellen is, is shorter. But, uh, no. uh,
0: <laughs> yes, he, Michael Gambit oh, is he taller. <laughs>
1: he's tall. He's, oh, taller, man,
0: than, he's taller than... He's taller than Roger Harris.
1: But, yeah... Ooh, oh, wow, that's insane. But, yeah, I truly love this film i think it might be the best in the series i can understand why everyone likes to call it the best in the series because it did change the game for the series even though i don't know how this got away with a pg Mm. raiden to be honest i still don't know how that's possible but you know what you live and you learn it's a great film and i love it so much and yeah that is my number six i i it was very high originally but then I thought about it numerous times, and I'm like, "Yeah, five films I like more than Prisoner of Azkaban." Even though Harry Potter is my favorite franchise, and I have two Harry Potter tattoos, I just realized that there were five films I liked more than Prisoner uh, of Azkaban.
0: It's not on my list. So yeah, so the only Ooh. movie that—and this is kind of spoilers for future lists too—the only movie that is on a top ten list from this franchise for me is Deathly Hallows Part Two in 2011. Although I do like a lot of these movies, uh, really a whole lot, just yeah. you know, the individual ones didn't really, um, especially not the first two, which I like. I don't love. I think they're a little too adherent to the novels. This one is is where they start to. Oh no! Yeah, I, I totally when, understand. This is that. where they um start to deviate a little bit, and I think like the whole ending, which is, the whole like third act, which is eventually turns into Back to the Future Part Two. Uh uh it plays <laughs> plays that whole thing very differently from what from what the book does with it but it is also very cinematic yeah. so it's you know adapting that really well that's what that's what this uh movie started to do really well for the books and so I do like it a lot I do have a problem in the first four movies with how quickly it moves through the plot because it feels and this is something that that Kind of after a few viewings, I, I noticed somebody wrote this and it was a good point. It feels like for the first four movies, each of the time, each of the years feels like maybe two weeks. <laughs> um, it's like they're they're moving. moving yeah, moving. yeah, yeah. But uh, but whatever, you know, uh, that's just little quibbles. It would be an eleven through twenty probably. Um, so I, I do like yeah. it a lot. So all right, well my number six moves around moves back around to your number ten, which is the Aviator from director Martin Scorsese. And I think it's one of the best, uh, you know, modern biopics um, in that, uh, you know, I don't mind the length. I I do get why some do. It is a lot of story and maybe, yeah, it's a lot of story. Maybe some of of it could be taken out. Maybe not. I'm not the one to judge that um, in terms of the actual plot points. Um, But I do think it's big and sprawling and extremely entertaining. And that plane crash sequence is just aces. I watched this. Just maybe uh, toward the end of the last year um, again. And cause it was on Netflix and I was like, Hey, I've got two hours and 45 minutes um, to, <laughs> to watch something. <laughs> and it really, it really does for me, at least fly by in terms of um, it, it. Well, maybe until some of the, some of the stuff in the third act where he starts to lose it a little bit. Um, and then, and then it slows down. Come in but, with the milk uh, until then. I mean, it really moves at a pace that's, that's uh, infectious and um, really entertaining, and just looks a dream. Kate Blanchett is fabulous in this. Only um, so good. Only time I think, I think, yeah, pretty sure. Only time anyone has won an Oscar for playing an Oscar-winning actor, uh, which I believe, yeah, so, which yeah, almost would not have been the case because Catherine Hepper didn't win. I don't think uh, solely win until. Like on Golden Pond in 1981, I know she tied at one point for an actress win. Um, but anyway, uh, but Kate Blanchett is doing a little bit more than just you know in, impersonating her. I think she's adding a lot to the role too. And um, yeah, I love this movie. So that is my number six. We're gonna take a quick break, and we're gonna give you our picks for for five through one of the best films of 2004. So stay tuned, folks. We'll be right back. All right, folks. Welcome back. Uh, you just heard our picks for the, for the from 10 to 6, first half of our picks for the best films of 2004. And that brings us around, Brian, to your number five. What is your number five of 2004?
1: My number five is your number seven, Collateral. Mm, okay. Now, I, you're probably shocked that this isn't as high on my list, but... You know, the same thing applies. There were films I liked more than this one. But Collateral is a film that is very highly respected by me. When I saw it, I was just getting into Michael Mann's films. So I had just seen Heat, The Insider, Ali. Um, That's all I had watched at the time before I had watched Collateral. I have since seen Public Enemies. I haven't seen Miami Vice. I know you loved that one. I I haven't seen that one. And I haven't seen his most recent film, Black Hat. But I know a lot of people didn't really care for it. So I'll I'll wait a while for that one. But yeah, Collateral to me is one of the finest examples of a neo-noir thriller come to life. I was talking about this with you not too long ago. And you brought up how amazing amazing against type Tom Cruise was. And he really was fantastic in a year filled with incredible. Yeah. Wow. I'm just excited to talk about this in a year (laughs) filled with incredible performances. I am flabbergasted that he was robbed of a nomination from the Academy for this. If I were to have nominated Tom Cruise for an Oscar and he had already gotten three Academy Award nominations prior to this, I would have nominated him for for, wow. Again, (laughs) I would have nominated him for this in a heartbeat. This is completely out of left field for him. He never plays characters like this. It's very rare to call Tom Cruise a bad guy in a film. It's very rare. There are a few exceptions where he plays very arrogant, cocky people, but this is completely different for him. Also, he dyed his hair gray, and his beard's gray, and he was 42 when this movie came out. And even with the gray hair, he still looked incredible. I don't understand how that's possible, but you know what? That's just (laughs) the genes he has, and you know what? Hopefully when I get to my 40s, I'll look like that. If I get gray hair, I hope I look like that, and I don't look like I'm 80. But, you know, we'll have to see what happens. But, no, this film is very incredible. It earns – all of the praise it gets. The editing, like you said, is top-notch. The cinematography is really great. It captures nighttime L.A. beautifully. I had just gone to L.A. for the first time a year ago, and I was in love with the city. And there was a night where me and my friends had gone out drinking, and we were just driving around L.A. And I felt like I was in collateral. Mine is <laughs> the being taken hostage part. So, um, no, it just had that beautiful feeling to it. It's a very very intense film when it has to be but it's also a very somber film when it has to be the last five minutes of this film are very very somber i'm not going to spoil what happens of course but let's just say involves people on a subway and after a very intense sequence you know it calms down it cools down and everything it's very relaxing and meditative and it's really wonderful it's incredible. Cruz is great. Jamie Foxx was incredible. He was obviously nominated for two Oscars that year and won the Best Actor Oscar for Ray, where he played Ray Charles. I thought this was... I don't know which performance I liked more. It's tough because I thought both of them were great performances and obviously they were both very different performances, but The whole dynamic of them two working together is incredible. They really knocked it out of the park. And you brought up Jay Pickett-Smith and her role. She was great. Uh, Mark Ruffalo, Peter Berg, everyone did a great job. The whole supporting cast was great. The nightclub sequence remains one of my favorite Mm. sequences in any film ever. Wonderfully edited. The music is high octane. It's very thrilling to watch. The first time I saw this film, I was watching it with my father who I who saw it in theaters, I think, with my mom when it came out. I think, or I don't know what happened. I think this came out when another film had come out. My mom had taken me and my sister to see something since we were fairly young, and my dad decided to go see this because he didn't want to see what we were seeing. Anyway, that's besides the point. Um, that nightclub scene, I actually did a whole, like, discussion of it in one of my film classes in high school. I did a project on this film but my project solely focused on the editing of that nightclub sequence. And it's one of my favorite things I've ever done. I just, the thrills, the high octane energy, the suspense, it's very unpredictable from start to finish. It's my favorite film from Michael Mann, Tom Cruise. This is my favorite performance he's ever given. I would probably say it's my favorite Jamie Foxx performance too. I, I, I just cannot praise this film enough. I always talk about this film with all my film friends, all my friends that are trying to watch films and everything. I always bring them collateral because, you know, it has a very cool premise. It has two very likable actors and it's brisk. It's quick. It's not slow at all. It's really, really terrific filmmaking. And to talk about one subtle moment real quick, there's a sequence where they're driving, and then all of a sudden they stop. And I don't know if it's dogs or wolves. wolves. I don't wolves. know what it is. That's it's cr- wolves. It's wolves. Yeah. Or ki- it's, it's coyotes, it's a- I think. Coyotes. Coyotes, yeah. And just that scene, oh, God, it was mm-hmm. such a nice breath of fresh air because the entire film is really intense. And then there's that subtle moment where they just stop the car, and then they're just watching these coyotes or wolves across the street and it's really touching it's it's just so good and that's before even more intense stuff happens so yeah collateral is a gem of a film it's very underrated not a lot of people talk about it it was nominated for film editing but it had lost to the aviator if they were gonna if they were gonna lose to anything i think the aviator is a perfect film to take that award but "Collateral" is a masterpiece. It's my favorite thing from Michael Mann. And if you guys haven't seen it, please do yourself a favor and check it out. It's truly remarkable. And it baffles me that Cruz has only worked with Michael Mann once. Yeah, I, it I seems kind of like a, a it, it seems like a partnership that just
0: makes sense. It just it just yeah, does. It, yeah.
1: Oh, I agree. I agree. And it's sad too because it makes me think about how he's only worked with Scorsese once, Paul Thomas Anderson once. He's only worked with certain filmmakers one time, and there's obviously plenty of filmmakers he has he had to work with. Like He would have worked with Tarantino at one point. They were considering him for once upon a time in Hollywood, but that didn't happen. And speaking of considering actors, at one point, the people that were possibly going to be playing mm-hmm. the roles of these characters, <laughs> Tom Cruise's character, Vincent, was going to be played by Russell Crowe, and get ready for this. Jamie Fox's yep. character, Max, was going to be played by, by Adam, Adam Sandler. Sandler. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine what that, that would have been, been like? So
0: strange. I mean, that would have been uncut gems for Adam Sandler like you oh, know, fifteen absolutely. years in advance. Also, yeah. I don't know if do you know the 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 backstory behind the coyote sequence? I do not. Okay. That they just happened to pass and they uh didn't have the setup for the lighting, so they just shot it.
1: Oh that's a yeah, real thing. That, that is a real thing. Real? Those oh, are wow. those are
0: coyotes. Those are those were not planned. Those were not brought in by anybody
1: oh wow. yeah that, that was that was that, a
0: wow like a just a miracle of nature <laughs> essentially i love that uh i love that yeah and they shot this on uh the Viper film stream high definition camera which is my favorite name for any camera uh uh-huh. yeah but uh yeah <laughs> and also this was also originally going to be the um the directing debut of janusz Kaminski,
1: who is um Ooh. yeah and then it and then it the d the uh the dp for Spielberg. yes
0: yeah and he yeah. and he ended up making his debut with um wait has he directed yet i forgot
1: i don't i don't, I think, he is. He I don't think he was has.
0: directed. yeah i don't think he has um but anyway uh it's just weird pro- projects that he's almost um uh or that he's been involved in like shooting funny people is just out of nowhere you know um, yeah, but I, I I love it. Yeah, it's great. All right. Well, obviously I agree with you on that one. So I'm going to go ahead and move to my number five, which is a sharp left turn from high octane thriller to quiet, uh, introspective drama comedy hybrid, and that is a movie that I know is going to pop up later on your list, and that's Sideways from director Alexander Payne, uh, who co-wrote this with his regular writing partner Jim Taylor, and it stars Paul Giamatti and Thomas Hayden Church as a couple of middle aged men. Uh, the church character is getting married and they are going to wine country um, and uh, Giovanni's character is kind of the primary focus, I guess, although it is a co-lead situation. But he's the primary focus and he's a wine connoisseur, but he also just ends the day as a drunk. Uh, and they they both meet women. Uh, um, uh, the, I'm sorry. <laughs> women are involved in their lives, both played by Virginia Madsen in an Oscar nominated role and Sandra O. Oh, Um, This is one I'm kind of stumbling over the plot because I did not watch this in preparation for the list, and I haven't seen Mm. it since – I can't remember. Um, Oh, gosh. It was (laughs) definitely more than a decade ago. I think – yeah, because it was when I was was living in Indiana. I caught up with this one, and and, um, Spanglish, in fact, uh, which is the movie that Adam Sandler had to do instead of Collateral – at the same yeah. on the same day. Anyway, uh but I love this movie no, nevertheless it really has always stuck with me even if you know some of the details of the characters have kind of slipped by in the years but um it's just really perceptive and and I always remember the um the bottle of wine is actually a live speech from from Virginia Madsen's character always yeah. stuck in my head and um that's just a beautiful performance. She was great in this movie.
1: She was, yeah, she's yeah. fantastic.
0: And you know, she had been remembered for being like a B actress up until then, um, and she's kind of slipped back into that, honestly. But, um, but she was fantastic in this, whatever the case. And Thomas Aiden Church, oh man, th- this performance just big, gregarious, but he's not leaning too heavily into that. He's just, he's just note perfect. Um, and Paul Giamatti, obviously, is a is a national treasure, one of the great actors living. So I love this movie. I love it. And I I just, yeah. I mean, I, I kind of wish that I rewatched it just to just to get caught up with it. It may have been higher, uh, honestly. But um, mm-hmm. when Payne is great, he's great. So I, I do love yeah. this guy. I know that we're going to get to this later for you, right?
1: <laughs> yes, we are. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, all
0: right. Well, then tell us your number four.
1: Okay. So my number four. I know for a fact it has to be on your list. This time, I'm certain this is on your list. If it's not, then I'm going to tell you that you're crazy. (laughs) My number four is Before Sunset. Okay. All right. (laughs) So Before Sunset is obviously the sequel to 1995's Before Sunrise, where it followed two young people played by Ethan Hawke and Julie Delphi named Jesse and Celine. They had met on a train going to Vienna, and they spent one whole night walking around, talking conversing it was very cute and sweet and endearing and it was wonderfully directed by richard Linklater. and all of them came back nine years later to show what happens to them crossing paths again this time in paris jesse is promoting a book that he had written about this night and he just so happens to run into celine since she lives in paris And the film follows them through one afternoon, taking place in real time, by the way, of just them talking and talking and talking. The dialogue, to me, felt more natural this time around than it did in Before Sunrise. And the reason why I believe that's the case is because Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy stepped in to co-write the screenplay with Richard Lankler this time around. They did the same thing with Before Midnight Mm -hmm. in 2013. And it's just so, so rich. It's so natural. It's layered. It's really, really beautiful. I would consider The Before Trilogy to be my favorite form of romance depicted on screen. All three of these films are masterful. Richard Linklater is a genius filmmaker. He's one of my favorites working. Even though, as of late, his films haven't been as great like after boyhood, I think his film started going down just a bit, but he still is considered one of my favorite filmmakers working today. Jesse and Celine are great characters, they're developed beautifully. You understand where both of them are coming from. And what I love a lot about before Sunset, other than the dialogue feeling more natural, I had brought this up is that it's set in real time. The movie's 80 minutes long, and it legit takes place in 80 minutes. It doesn't jump like five minutes later or two hours later or a day later. You know, it feels like, and I'm going to compare this to a show that I know Joel loves. It's like a 24 episode, <laughs> essentially, yeah. minus the chaotic environment that surrounds the characters. It's set in real time. And it's wonderful. It's incredible. Like, the detail that the filmmakers put into this, Lee Daniel cinematography, Lee Daniel, not, wait, on. <laughs> Yeah, Lee Daniel, not Lee Daniels, the filmmaker who made Precious, not him. Lee Daniel, the cinematographer, Um, the editor, Sandra Adar, who is a common collaborator of Linklater. Everything about this film just works to me. It's my favorite romance film of the 2000s decade. Mm. Uh, It's actually my second favorite romance film of all time uh, behind a film from 2010 called Blue Valentine. That's my favorite romance film ever made. And I just something about these films. It just makes me appreciate love more. And I'm not the kind of guy that likes romance films. You know, I may be a cynic, I guess, but I do really love all three of these films. I rewatched all of them earlier in the week in preparation of this podcast I was going to rewatch just before sunset, but I'm like, I can't do that without <laughs> rewatching the other ones. So I rewatched the whole trilogy in a day and it's just beautiful. And I'm happy that this film was nominated for best adapted screenplay. Honestly, in any other year, in any other year, if a certain film hadn't come out that took home this award, I think this would have been the one to win the award. Hands down. In my opinion, it. I just, Oh God, this film is so good. And the ending, one of my favorite endings of all time, The Baby, You're Gonna Miss That Plane, I Know. Oh, just wow, beautiful. And I can't even imagine being someone to wait nine years to know what happens. I I can't even imagine what that was like. Imagine watching Before Sunrise in 1995 and being like, oh, I wonder what's going to happen. And then all of a sudden they make a sequel, and you're like, huh, interesting. Then you watch it, and you're like, oh, I wonder what's going to happen now. And then all of a sudden they make another one, you're like, oh. Oh, man. Oh, gosh. Uh, Yes. So Before Sunset, fantastic film. The best sequel to have come out in 2004. And it's one of the best sequels, straight up sequels, not like sequels where you count two and everything else, but just second installments. It's one of the best of all time.
0: Well, I'm going to pass on this for just a couple minutes. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going <laughs> to go to my number four, which I know is going to be on your list. Uh, yeah. I'm pretty sure this is your number one. Pretty sure. I'd be surprised if it isn't.
1: We'll have to see. Yeah.
0: My number four is garden state from director Zach Braff. Uh, this is the story of a young man, quite troubled named Andrew largeman who goes by large, uh, his friends uh played by zach braff who also directed and wrote the movie uh who comes back home after his um mother dies she's a paraplegic and she drowns while taking a bath and uh he decides he he decides that this is the catalyst to come home where he has not in had a very good life uh with his especially with his father played by ian holm um and then he also meets this sort of like human live wire, this also quite troubled young woman played by him, Natalie Portman, named Sam. Um, and they, they he just kind of navigates both these these emerging feelings and also his very complicated feelings for his past, um, as he uh, you know kind of reencounters a lot of the people that he grew up with and finds that they're that they are exactly what he thought that they would be in very depressing ways. And meanwhile, he's gone off and he's started a TV show that he doesn't really like bringing up uh, or when people bring it up. Um, And this of course was uh, right in the midst of his run on scrubs, which I I still need to watch. I know that you're going to, you're going to, you, you yeah, I do. I know that uh, eventually Brian's going to like hunt me down and murder me. Um, Uh, I will. All (laughs) right. Well, there you heard that please. Um, but uh, <laughs> here's the thing, like this movie is formative, uh, for many reasons uh, about an entire subgenre of romance, of romantic dramas. And the reason is because that after this movie, there was a huge glut of movies made independently that were about kind of emotionally detached men, white men, <laughs> um, who kind of fall for this manic pixie dream girl that's what they were called and it's because of this movie that they were called that because of an article that uh uh came out uh shortly after i think a critical reevaluation a few years later in which they called this character of sam a manic pixie dream girl somebody who uh, is a is a woman uh written by a man i guess was something that was important to that um who is very troubled and uh lies a lot and that's kind of the 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 reason that this movie's not super well liked anymore. Um so yes, it has inspired a lot of pretty terrible movies. <laughs> I'll just say it. it some good ones too. Um I think that the reason that this movie's ground zero for this kind of trend is because it's a really good version of this story. Um and that's because of the performances, particularly from Braff and portman that are honest about the characters that they're portraying. They're not trying to do the detached movie characters in a quirky indie comedy thing that a lot of the performances and later movies like this do. And I just have to go back to one of the worst examples in recent years, a movie that is like inexplicably well-liked that I hate and I could not stand it in theaters and I tried it again at one point, couldn't even make it 30 minutes because I'd already had the first viewing. and I was like, I'm done with this. And that is <laughs> me and Earl and the dying girl, which is just pure artifice all the way through. And I don't just mean in terms of the style that it's trying to implement, which is sort of a mixture of this Zach Braff type directing style. Um, and also like Wes Anderson, it is so artificial in its emotions and its message that it's trying to present in the character at the center of it, it's a movie that gets worse and worse in my mind as it gets further and further away. This movie is a lot more honest about large, this character who is very troubled, but also is distinctively human in a way that I think is, has been lacking from a lot of these other movies like this. And it's the same thing with the character of Sam, who is again, kind of this, uh, this unknown variable for him who, you know, he, he's always on his toes with her and uh, just really comes to an ending. That's honest. That's again, honest about both of them. Uh, it's, I guess, happy, but it's also, it also comes with a big giant ellipsis of, you know, it's not going to be like a perfect relationship. Um, you know, I guess I'm spoiling everything here, but if you haven't seen garden state yet, go ahead and see it. Um, I don't think it's really streaming anywhere, is it? Uh, I think it's just rentable but
1: uh it um it actually just got put on to stream oh, okay. earlier well, in the week. Well, I, don't, so, I, can't, yeah. I can't
0: I can't I can't keep up at this point. But uh it's <sighs> it's tremendous. It's a really emotional film, um and it's got a really, really deep sense of humor too. Um and I I really like it. Uh, I you know I really liked it when I saw it, which was last saw it, which was more than a decade ago. I'm really glad I rewatched this because it was actually originally a little bit lower on my list, um, somewhere around the number eight spot, I think. And it and and a rewrite and a rewatch really put it up here. Um, yeah, it's fantastic. It's you know it's got a mouth on it, uh, which I which I appreciate. I appreciate that it's R rated, um, and seems to be it doesn't seem it also doesn't seem to be leaning into this like quirky dialogue thing that a lot of these movies have this seems to be fairly naturalistic dialogue to me um this is how people interact with like old 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 uh i guess not really friends but old classmates and stuff especially when he runs into people um you think like the jeffrey aaron character who's at a who tries to like loop him into a Um, (laughs) into a a, um, like a pyramid scheme or something. Yeah, which uh, I love Jeff Jeffrey Aaron. He's great. I've been watching his career for a while, and um, he's also he's also terrific on the show that just ended called Madam Secretary. Go watch it, folks. It's on Netflix now. And um, anyway, but you you think about like that interaction. That is how it happens when you run into old. Either, either they're friends, like they were friendly to you in high school. Maybe you've, you know, like lost contact with them, and you come back into contact, and you never really thought very highly of them, and then you see them again, and they're exactly, again, exactly <laughs> what you think they're going to be. Uh, <laughs> that is once again, you know, th- this this kind of situation, and I just, I love it. I love it. So yeah, that's my number four. We'll get to it on your list. I'm sure is. is... Uh,
1: it, it will. It will happen. <laughs> it will happen. And listen, Joel, th- it, it, because it's low, I'm gonna fly over to Texas and write the words "balls." Okay? <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I'll, I'll go through the rest of the day with a stain on my head. Uh, uh <laughs> I love that it stays there for so long. Anyway, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's great. All right. Well, we're around to your number three.
1: All right, my number three is. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. This film is very, very fascinating. It has a very, 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 very emphasis on the very unique premise. It follows a man named Joel Barish, played by Jim Carrey, who had just gotten out of a relationship with a woman named Clementine Kruczynski played by an Oscar-nominated Kate Winslet. He then finds out That through this weird scenario that is led by Tom Wilkinson, she has gotten all of her memories with Joel erased from her brain. And Joel feels very heartbroken by it. He is very depressed because of this. So then he decides to follow the same path of doing that. And that's all I'm going to say. This is a film that you should go into not knowing much. What I just said to you guys is the basic plot of the film. And that's all you should really know going into it. This was directed by Michelle Gondry, who I haven't seen anything from since this. I think the only thing that I've seen from Michelle Gondry was the Green Hornet. And that wasn't very good. (laughs) I I have no idea how she directed that, to be honest. I just I, I don't understand how. How that happened. I just I don't get it. I don't know how he made it, but you know money. Um and it was written by Charlie Kaufman, who won the Oscar for best original screenplay. Rightfully so, a very deserving win. Charlie Kaufman is one of the finest writers working today in the film industry. This, as I said, it's a very original story, but it also balances a whole bunch of genres seamlessly. This is very funny, it's very depressing, it's romantic. There's, like, psychological mind-bending sequences here. It's a weird film, but it's really smart, too. And it's so original. And, you know, a lot of people complain when there's original films coming out, but this is the definition of an original film done beautifully well. The writing, the directing, the editing, the soundtrack, the score, the pacing, and most importantly to me is the acting. Now, as I said, Kate Winslet, rightfully so, was nominated for an Academy Award for this. But if I were to be honest and say what the biggest, and I know Joel doesn't like this word, snub. (laughs) The biggest snub of any acting nominations in 2004, hands down, was Jim Carrey. I don't know how he was not nominated for this. This was an unbelievable performance. This is a fine example of a comedic actor pulling off dramatic chops. Terrifically well, he does incorporate some of his comedic chops here very well, and ve- and it works very well. It isn't forced; it works very well for the sequences that's in. But his dramatic acting is incredible. Like you look back at the Truman Show, Man on the Moon, and even a not great film called The Number Twenty Three. Jim Carrey is a fantastic dramatic actor, and this performance was snubbed of an Oscar nomination, in my opinion. He had gotten nominated for a Golden Globe. He got nominated for a BAFA, but he wasn't nominated for an Oscar. The Best Actor nominees from 2004, they're all great. I loved all those performances. But if I were to be honest, I would have put Jim Carrey in there. I would have probably taken out Clint Eastwood from Million Dollar Baby and replaced him with Jim Carrey in Eternal Sunshine. This film is also very honest with its subject. You know, everyone's been in bad relationships. I'm, I've am i been in bad relationships. Everyone's been in bad relationships. So this is a film that I think anyone could watch. I mean, obviously, there's no possible way to erase a single person from your memory. But they do things here that aren't expected, and they do it flawlessly. And that's why I think this is one of the best romance stories ever told on film it's very original it's very unique and it's one of my favorite films ever made i re this in preparation for the podcast and i just love it the more and more i watch it and i have to talk about the cinematography real quick because my thesis professor two days ago was talking to us about our favorite frames from films So when it came to me, I talked about Eternal Sunshine and how when we focus on scenes in the real world, when Joel's getting his memory erased, it's very bleak to look at. But then when you go to the memories, not all of them, but some of them are very vibrant and full of color. And that's a really wonderful thing to touch upon. And not a lot of people talk about the cinematography in this film, which I don't know how that's possible, but... Yeah, there's just so many aspects of this film that are handled beautifully. And I think this film earns the M word. It's a masterpiece. If you guys have not watched Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, it's available to stream on Stars. Ironically, a lot of the movies that I've talked about on this list are available to stream on Stars. I have no idea why, <laughs> but that just happens to be the case. They, they, so they yeah, knew, you, they they knew your list.
0: And they're like, yes. let's just put most they, of it on. They knew
1: my list. They knew my list. <laughs> they knew it. They, they knew my list. So yeah, eternal sunshine of the spotless mind is my number three.
0: Yeah, we're gonna come back to this one. Um, all right, good. So, <laughs> well, I only you know put the pause on your number uh, four, um, for so long, uh, <laughs> because my number four, my number three is before sunset. So yeah, I love this trilogy. Um, if it remains a trilogy and if it comes back, then it will be an ongoing series, I guess. Um. But for now, yes, it's a trilogy. It's one of the best in the history of trilogies. And uh, it, somehow <laughs> is my – is my and I'm going to put quotes around this because, of course, it's my number three of 2004. But it's my, quote, least, quote – or no, le- quote, least, unquote, favorite of the three, uh, if only because the other two are so great, but – um, but I just, they're, they're amazing. And, um, and yeah, I, I just love the entire idea of this, uh, two people who had this one, like, you know, just crazy, just strange, unusual day where they both left a tremendous impression on each other said, Hey, whatever's going on, let's meet up in nine years. I love that. And uh and then this movie pays that off. And it pays it off beautifully. It really kinda gets into um in more ways than just it's the premise. It gets into you know what happens when that happens. Uh and my and our friend Mark put it really well. It's in his review of Before Midnight, and I'll only use the first half of this. But basically it is a love story about whether or not love can survive an extended period of absence um and of course it can when it's something like this because you've you've already (laughs) made an enormous impression on the other person they made an enormous enormous impression on you clearly those feelings were um you know reciprocated in both directions and it's it's just great and hawk and delpy are great um their contrib- their contributions to the screenplay, of course, were, you know, f- fleshing out the characters and figuring out what they might have been up to, and you know, obviously, like the the thing where he's getting married and has a um, has a flight to to catch, and um, or he's gotten married. I'm sorry, and he has he's yeah, gotten he's married, been
1: mar- and he has yeah,
0: and ha- yeah, I, I just forgot where this took place anyway uh (laughs) but i but i love that i mean and there's also the risk involved in that i mean when you say nine years and you mean nine years anything could happen (laughs) in those nine years especially if part of the agreement is we're not going to talk to each other within those nine years we're going to meet up in nine years and see where we are and of course all of that you know brings all of that back um and yeah i love it i love it so much um it's it's lovely. It's a lovely film. So, yeah, it's my number three. Obviously, you agree with me, so we're going to move right on to your number two.
1: Okay, my number two is Sideways. Mm, okay. Okay, so this is in my top ten films of all time. This film is one of those films that I could watch over and over again and never be bored by it. I could watch it just to watch it. I can watch it to put it on the background. I could watch this film as many times as possible and it never gets old for me i watched this film for the first time about seven eight years ago i i started watching a lot of these films when i was in high school so when i was in high school that's when i started watching a lot of these acclaimed films like these oscar films and everything and sideways you know you brought up how they go to wine country and everything, then they meet this women, but there's also a lot more other things to it, and this is very integral to the plot, and it's not a spoiler since it's, you know, listed in the, in the IMDb synopsis and everything. So Thomas Hayden Church's character, Jack, as you said, you know, I think you brought that he was getting married, which he is. They're going to be spending the whole week before he gets married just chilling, drinking wine, playing golf, having a good time, but... He says to Paul G. My, character, Miles, he's like, Miles, listen, here's the deal. I want to get laid. You know, I, I feel like it's right for me to get laid. Even though I'm getting married, I think I should get laid. And Miles is like, okay, whatever, sure. So throughout that, there's a lot of comical moments, a lot of genuine heartfelt moments, or some heartbreaking moments. Sideways' the screenplay is one of my favorite screenplays ever. It won the Oscar for Adapted Screenplay. You brought up the monologue that Virginia Madison gives about wine. It's one of my favorite monologues ever mm-hmm. written. Uh, all the actors are great. The whole ensemble of these four actors is really pitch perfect. Paul Giamatti is another performance that I don't know how it, he did not get nominated for an Oscar. Part of <laughs> me wonders that, that because he wasn't nominated for this, the academy's like, oh, we're sorry for not nominating you for Sideways. Will nominate you for Cinderella Man <laughs> as an apology for that, and he was great in that yeah. film, and his nomination was deserved. But this performance was better. He's always a delight. Him, to watch him,
0: and screen. Cinderella Man was more of a like. Here's one for Hollywood and and regular audiences. His and he's good in it. He's really good in it. But he is. But this one, yeah. There, there's he's going a little deeper. He's going a little deeper. He or a lot deeper. He's going deeper.
1: <laughs> a lot. A lot deeper. He's. Super depressing to watch, but he's also really, really funny. He owns the screen when he he shines. He's so good in this film. Everyone's great. And Alexander Payne is one of those filmmakers who I like, or uh, no, I should say I love pretty much everything he's made, with the exception of one film, Election, The Descendants, Nebraska, and about Schmidt are fantastic. I know Joel that you were one of the people that liked uh, downsizing. It disappointed me, considering how like great his mm. track record was prior. It was disappointing. It was, it disappointing. It was,
0: it was certainly disappointing in the context of him. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I thought it was and pretty it, good. It on wasn't
1: own. the worst movie It wasn't the worst movie I ever seen. But as a big fan of Payne's work, like loving all the stuff that he had made, I was like. I don't know. And I and the sad thing is, he co-wrote that with Jim Taylor, who wrote this. So it's like, how is that possible? Right. <laughs> so, you know, but everyone, every director has their missteps. It, you know, it's not the end of the world. Um, it is it, yeah, it is what it is. But Sideways really is a remarkable film. It touches upon midlife crisis and, you know, the idea of falling in love and, you know, finding someone and, you know, everything it really is a beautiful film it's a very relaxing film too Mm -hmm. which is nice because you know when you go to wine country a place like that you want to relax and this movie is relaxing there are some moments where the stakes are pretty high and in a comical way of course like this movie is more leaning on the comedy than the drama and that's okay because it blends those sequences really well Alexander Payne is no stranger to doing comedy and drama together. He's done that with Nebraska, the descendants election was mostly a comedy and I haven't seen the Schmidt in like forever. So I'm not sure if that was more of a comedy or a drama. I'm not entirely sure on top of my head, but he's one of the best filmmakers in the industry. This is one of the best screenplays ever written. This is one of the best films I've ever seen. Sideways is a masterpiece and it's on stars. Like every other <laughs> freaking film on this list. Um, it really is a special film to me. It just touches me so much, and it warms up my heart every time I watch it. I really do love this film, and my favorite line of all time, maybe in the film of all time, is when Paul G. screams from the top of his lungs and says, I am not drinking any effing molo." <laughs> just incredible. Fantastic. Sideways is my number two
0: well clearly I agree with you i i, I really wish <laughs> that I had rewatched this honestly i need i need i don't own it otherwise i would have done that I, I, that's yeah. yeah but uh anyway i I still agree with you it's one that's certainly lingered for a long time for me all right well, my number two uh <laughs> okay what my number two was number three on Roger Ebert's list of the worst films of two thousand and four. <laughs>
1: Oh, we're we getting, getting to this point. To
0: this, point. Uh, <laughs> this is a movie that I have sung the praises for for years now. I caught well, not years. I guess I caught up with it. I guess three, four, three or four years ago, um, and just after, like a couple of co- critical colleagues were big fans, and I was like, you know, I haven't, haven't seen this. I was curious, and it blew me away. Blew me away. Uh, because I just was not expecting how, uh, how much this would hit me. But it is <laughs> – okay. I just keep laughing because it's, it, the, the premise of it doesn't lend itself to being number two on a best list. But it is about a – it's sort of a risky business type of plot. Um, and it is about a young, affluent white kid <laughs> who is about to go off to college. And is in line for the possibility of a uh, of a scholarship, and he uh, he befriends well befriends he falls for the girl next door, uh, and that is also the title of the movie. This one comes from rather forgotten director Luke Greenfield, uh, who has gone on well, who previously to this had directed The Animal with Rob Schneider, and went on to direct Something Borrowed, which nobody's heard of or seen uh, and if
1: and if you have then
0: you're lying and also let's be cops um with uh <laughs> whoever was in that movie jake johnson and uh one of the wayans people anyway this is this is so far above those movies it's not even funny uh and i love every second of it um because well not because but okay so here's here's where the the plot goes it turns out that this girl next door uh, is a an adult film star, and the boy in question, played by Emil Hirsch uh, decides that he's uh, eventually decides that he's going to employ her to make a uh, possibly make a porn movie right in the middle of prom. Um, but really the movie is not about that. The movie is about a young man coming to realize that this girl next door is well one a person that he really falls in love with and also two is a person is a is someone who is an adult film star who enjoys sex this is an incredibly sex positive movie uh in, in ways that are incredibly progressive for 2004 and uh, really likes her job, but is also tied down by a boss, uh, a producer and kind of a in the kind of the pimp role um, played by Timothy Oliphant uh, is is kind of under an abusive kind of, you know, employer employee relationship because this guy's he, he puts on the niceties, but he's also kind of a psychopath. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so. Essentially, it just becomes kind of like a um, uh, uh, <laughs> a member measuring, you know, contest between the two. Meanwhile, he's really just falling for her hard, and isn't isn't anticipating that at all because she ends up having many more layers than he anticipates a, a porn star to have. That's part of the lesson of this movie is uh, that he ends up connecting with her in ways that she needs. She ends up being somebody that he needs at that particular moment. Um, you know, he needs to expand his world a little bit and it's really just not happening right now. It, this movie's a coming of age film. It's also just a ribald comedy and it's incredibly honest about its characters in ways that are fascinating. And this kind of came out at a very strange period, I think for big studio comedies, because as I proved to, brian by telling him to watch the trailer after seeing the movie they they Uh sold this as basically here's a new american pie for you here's here's the new sorority boys if anybody even remembers what that was here's the new kind of you know big raunchy sex comedy and i think that it's basically the forgotten masterpiece of that particular brand of comedy from the 2000s because it came out Right, you know, it came out kind of after this period with the Farrelly brothers, with movies like Kingpin. There's something about Mary, Shallow Howl, uh Stuck on You, and all of that, where they had had their peak. And then it also came out before Judd Apatow came in and basically redefined the genre, and then dominated for the, like the next ten years. And it kind of got lost because it never really had a place among these other movies that were, doing, that, that were doing things far more superficially and far more uh, just kind of mean-spiritedly um, than this one was. You know, it was coming out in the era of Freddy Got Fingered. It was coming out in the era of all of these other movies, Slackers, that were, I haven't seen many of these, but that were just kind of renowned for being sc- scatological, you know, uh, crap fests, basically. And this one is is far more honest. It's incredibly well acted. I think that Emil Hirsch is fantastic in this. I think that uh, that Alicia Kuthbert, who plays the, I, should, I forgot her name. I forgot to mention her. Um, uh,
1: her name is Danielle. No, I mean I
0: forgot to mention her name. Um, yeah, oh, yeah, she plays oh. <laughs> Danielle in this movie. The 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 star in question, and uh, Timothy Oliphant. Fantastic! Really, really funny. Really threatening. Fantastically nuanced performance that really like uh, turn. It's like a it's like an on off switch with him. He just he he yeah. moves into this threatening mode just as easily and with just as much charisma as is he's playing to the audience. Um, and the audience is whoever's in his grasp. Uh, and he ultimately kind of has his um, has his way with with this kid. And I just. Yeah, I love this movie. I'm really passionate about it. And in fact, for Spectrum Culture, pretty soon, um, in the next couple of months, I'll be writing a big gigantic piece about it being an underrated film. Um mm-hmm. and so yeah, I am a big proponent of the girl next door. It is only for rental right now. Uh it's not streaming anywhere, even stars. I'm sorry. I know that we've been I know we've have, we've been <laughs> yeah. having a a run with uh with movies on stars but it's not on stars right now it is for rental in other places though so definitely worth checking out um yeah, yeah. so
1: yeah. So, you know, you you were constantly telling me to watch this film, watch this film, watch this film. And I'm like, all right, I'll watch it. And I wanted to watch it in preparation for this because I knew it was going to be on your list. I obviously didn't know where it would be. And probably it's like, oh, my God, like as this episode is progressed, I'm like, oh, God, it's going to be his number one. It's going to be a controversial thing. And, and, you know, that's his opinion and everything. So, yeah, I watched it last night and I got to tell you, I thought it was mm-hmm. great. I I really I really liked it a lot. I was very surprised by it. I thought it was really funny. I thought it was really smart. There were a lot of heartfelt moments throughout the film. The one that got to me the most, other than the moral fiber speech, which I love, <laughs> I love that sequence. That was, that was oh so great. Gosh. It was it, it started off really funny, but then it oh, got it really just gets, it
0: just builds. Yeah, it's great. It,
1: it builds and it builds so well. So right after. He realizes that she's a porn star. They go to a motel and she storms off and gets angry. And Matthew, the character played by Emil Hirsch, is like, why didn't you just tell me? And Daniel's like, because I didn't want to, because I loved the way he looked at me. And that moment really touched and, me. And that line just made me go. Yeah, oh, and I love God. that line because
0: it's two levels. One, she didn't want to tell him yet because, of course, that's her decision. And this is a movie yes. that constantly that constantly puts her agency as a person at at risk by because of these dumb white guys, and she didn't want him to be another dumb white guy. She had this run where she was slowly realizing, "Oh, so he doesn't recognize me," uh, which she felt probably would have been awkward from the from the get-go, but she also didn't she didn't want to, and that is so key, but then also. Yeah, the added layer of, I loved how you looked at me because it was so different from everybody else who ever looks at me. And it's just because she – and it's probably the easiest message to send, but it's a really important one, especially in 2004, where things about this particular industry were at a much lower degree of understanding and sympathy and empathy and all of that. For a movie like this to come out like this was insane to me and – it yeah. really just, it really does. It re- it returns a lot of her own feelings about herself and her situation. And that's so important. She's not just a bimbo, you know, and she's, she's human. human. She enjoys her work. She just doesn't like the situation that she's in surrounding her job. And now she's met this guy who really likes her for being, for who she is and is a great match for her. And, you know, there's the scene where he almost kind of takes advantage, but she clocks it immediately. She knows what he's up to. She knows, she knows immediately what she, what he's up to. And she decides to take some of that back, but not in a way that then they become enemies and then they have a falling out. I mean, it's immediate that they get back together pretty much, or that they get back on uh, on friendly terms. And I love, and I love that the movie switches that up too. I, I just think that this movie, is doing so many things differently than some lesser director, you know, um, would have would have would have done would have would have performed. Oh no, I agree. Yeah, it's fantastic. So
1: it really is fantastic. I was very surprised by it, and I'm glad I watched yeah. it. I don't know if I would have watched it if you didn't tell me to. I probably would have like eventually, but right. I was not expecting this film to turn out as good as it was. And yeah, Timothy Allfan incredible performance fantastic yeah. like, like just wonderful oh, yeah. and it also gave us a very early performance Paul Dano, Paul Dano, <laughs> who i thought was as great a, as a he character his
0: name we probably shouldn't say on, oh, <laughs> on no, this podcast
1: no, no, no. we should <laughs> and, not but and then chris he was great and chris a...
0: marquette too is uh, kind of an yeah, underrated he presence he was also uh he was in a few movies in the 2000s he's he's been pretty quiet uh but i will always yeah. remember him just a side note completely separate from this I will always remember him for a guest spot that he had on house where he, he Mm. plays a homeless man who comes in with some sort of like, uh, his coughing up blood and it's absolutely the most twisted final twist ever in a house episode. It's amazing. Anyway, Mm. go, go check that out. Uh, that episode out. Um, I think it's in season seven. Um, but yeah, it's fantastic. He's he's really good in this too. So uh, yeah, we're up to year number one and, uh, you know, process of elimination. We know what it is, but
1: say what it is. Well, actually, my number one is Scooby-Doo and <laughs> Monsters <laughs> Unleashed. Of course, of course. Uh, no, no, no. No, my number one is Garden State, as Joel brought up. Now, Garden State is a very important film in my life. For many reasons. The first being, like Sideways, it's in my top ten films of all time. Garden State is very high on my list. It's in my top five films of all time. I've seen this film like 30 times. It I've seen it numerous times. It never gets old. Um, the The big reason why I had watched this in the first place was because I was a huge fan of Scrubs scrubs is my all-time favorite comedy show so when hearing that zach braff had directed a movie i'm like oh i have to watch this just to see how it is and everyone was talking about how big of a deal it was in the indie film um culture so i'm like i'll give it a watch i saw one day on like hbo or something not stars but it was on (laughs) hbo one time we're Um, we're not being paid by stars by the way Uh, (laughs) we are not being paid by stars so i um I went on HBO and I watched it and I was blown away from the first frame until the very last frame. The opening with the dream plane crash. Oh God. Wow. Goosebumps chills. Um, The acting is really strong. Braff not only gave a heck of a good performance, but he directed this very well. He wrote this very well. The dialogue is sharp. At times it does feel very natural. And it works very, very well. And the thing is, I wasn't expecting Zach Braff of all people to direct the film like this. Because if you've seen Scrubs, his character, and he's the lead, obviously, on that show. His character is an idiot. He's smart, but he's an idiot. And in this, he plays a completely different character. And he does it so well. And then Natalie Portman comes in. And this was a great year for Natalie Portman. Keep in mind, mm-hmm. she was in this. And then she was in Closer, which she was nominated for an Oscar for. That's another one I had rewatched in the last few days and it was very good um but andrew and sam once they first meet in that waiting room you know when the dog is humping andrew's leg um it's a really charming scene and then the music comes in and that's the thing i don't know i honestly my mind's been blanking i don't know if joel touched upon the soundtrack for this film oh i I forgot to mention for this That is a very pivotal thing to talk about mm-hmm. when talking about this film. The soundtrack is one of the best soundtracks in any film. It won a Grammy for usage of music. I, in a I film, should also and it's I wonderful. should also say
0: that our, that our like back-to-back choices here, mine number two and your number one have
1: amazing soundtracks. I mean, yeah. I mean, uh, Girl yeah. Next Door
0: starts out with uh, Under Pressure, <laughs> which gives you an idea. And then it
1: ends with um, Bob Alley. Yes, Night.
0: exactly. And there's also a great use – I'm, I'm going back to Girl Next Door now. Sorry. But there's a great – <laughs> there's one of the great cinematic kisses of all time, and it's set to this wonderful song. Probably people know it, but I wasn't really aware of it. But David Gray, This Year's Love. Everybody go look that song up. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Yeah. It's used perfectly. It's used twice – It's used in the kiss and it's also used in their love scene, which is one of the most beautiful scenes. Uh, I love that scene. Um, yeah, anyway. Uh, but yeah, I just totally forgot to mention that the soundtrack to the girl next door is one of my favorites. Like it's almost famous level. Um, yeah uh, same, same, yeah, with, same this with this one lots of is, is l- lots of tremendous indie stars uh indie indie icons kind of the people uh, you know early songs from them but yeah indie yeah. indie music i mean it has Coldplay an early track from Coldplay. it has yes. um
1: the shins it ha- yeah
0: it has the shins it has simon and garfunkel great use of them uh the only living boy in new yeah. york yeah i it's a fantastic yeah. uh soundtrack
1: yeah, th- this film's soundtrack is just unbelievable. And you can't even talk about this film without talking about the soundtrack. Like, all the songs. I mean, yeah, starting off with a Coldplay song and then ending with Let Go by fro mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Oh, my God. Yeah. Just, oh, that, that ending is amazing. And then another reason why this film is so special to me, and this is just a personal preference, The film is called Garden State, and it's obviously named after New Jersey. That's what New Jersey's nickname, and that's where I'm from. So it's very cool to have a film set in New Jersey and, you know, be all New Jersey and everything. It's like with Clerks, since Clerks was shot in New Mm -hmm. Jersey. It's made by a Jersey filmmaker and everything. So it's like that. Um, But, yeah, I I don't like that people like to bash this film um, nowadays for, like, its tone and, like, everything that it goes for i don't like that people put this film down because those people don't know what they're talking about straight up and their reasons are also very invalid and yeah the mag pixie dream girl thing i understand that whole thing but it's like that, that's not necessarily a bad thing with this movie because the character is so well written all the characters in this film are very well written and you know you can't just help but you know it warms up your heart when you watch this film. It makes you laugh, it makes you cry. It's a very touching film and it's really beautiful. And you touched upon the ellipsis. That's a very mm-hmm. pivotal thing to this film. And it's actually a pivotal thing in life when you think about it. You you put an ellipsis on something. If you don't want something to be over, you don't you you're like, Oh, this is isn't necessarily over. And Large made a good point. We're just gonna put like an ellipsis mm-hmm. on it. Like it's not over. It may be over for a bit, but it's not one hundred percent over. Yeah. Like, that line, to me, got to me. Like, I thought about it, and I'm like, oh, yeah. You know, that's a very important thing to think about. But, yeah, Garden State, it's – there's just so much about this film that just really speaks to me a lot as a filmmaker, too. My The first film that I had made at college, I originally heavily inspired Garden State. It was originally heavily inspired by Garden State, but then that fell through because I couldn't do – some of the stuff. It was, it was a long story, but that's for a different time. Um, but this is just one of those films that sparked a huge core with me, and it left a huge impact on me. And since then, I have called it one of my favorite films of all time. And no other film from 2004 has stuck with me more than Zach Braff's excellent, truly excellent directorial debut, Garden State. And that's why it's my number one. Well,
0: clearly, I think it's the worst movie of all time. I'm kidding. (laughs) No, no, it's great. Uh, Well, my number one is sort of like with you. It's actually in my top five or so of all time. And you've already touched on it. I said, I'm going to come back to it. So people people know (laughs) what I'm about to say. But it is Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Now, this is a movie with a funny story attached to it. So I got this movie for Christmas... Uh, ironically enough, the same Christmas when I had three separate diseases at the same time. Anyway, viruses. Um, very, very tumultuous uh, Christmas. So I got this movie from my brother, and he thought that I had seen it. So he bought it for me for Christmas. And I was like, oh, wow, I haven't seen this. He's like, you haven't seen it? <laughs> so, anyway. So I watched it. I think I got around to it because, of course, I was sick. I, I really wasn't. I mean, I don't think that this is a movie that I, I would have watched when I was sick. Like, I, I ultimately made the, the decision not to. I don't think I would have liked to watch this when I was sick. I may have had a very different, yeah. like, relationship with this movie if, if not. But, um, but I got it. I watched it in the first week of 2010. And so it was one of the first movies, maybe the first movie I saw in the 2010s, uh, just not the 2010s releases, but just the first movie that I watched. And then I proceeded because I was so deeply affected by it. I proceeded to watch it. I think it was like eight times within the next 12 days. Mm. (laughs) Uh, this is one that, that stayed with me and I kept thinking about it for months and months and months and months on end. Um, through much of the rest of the year it was one that just kept coming back to my mind it had dug its heels into my soul if that sounds pretentious good i'm trying to sound a little bit pretentious here uh (laughs) but i just love what this is saying about human nature uh i love what this is saying about the human the the natural human response to to when you have a relationship that goes sour you want to try to forget about it there's a there's a piece of you that wants to do it, and this movie's about giving people a literal option to do that <laughs> uh, at least it is for a while about that and then it turns into a very different kind of story uh while still being kind of about that because of course it, it the it kind of turns its head on what we expect the protagonist of the story to do. And it sends him on this kind of journey through his own mind. Uh, That's all I'll say. It's a journey through his own like perception of the relationship. And um, Jim Carrey's performance, I, I, you know, you, you mentioned it. I don't like the word snub. This is the exception. I would say that it's a snub um, because I, I understand what snubs are. And I don't like saying it about most things, but I think that especially since Ray, since, uh, since Ray, wow, uh, since Kate Winslet was nominated, they probably should have nominated Jim Carrey, who, you know, I think that the Truman Show might be his best performance, but this one is, is right there, like a very close yeah. number two, uh, because it is so internalized and it's so different from Jim Carrey. I mean, you don't watch Joel Barish and see Ace Ventura. You just don't. And it's because he's completely transformed into this other character. And Kate Winslet, fantastic. And it's another situation where you don't look at her and see a lot of her other roles because, of course, she's English. She has done a bunch of uh, roles within the context of like period dramas, like Titanic or Sense and Sensibility or whatever. And Mm -hmm. you, and especially at this point in her career where she was coming off a lot of those roles, that's what you see her as. You see her as the character in Corsets. And so for her to like don this colored hair and, uh, be kind of, I guess, a manic pixie dream girl, but, but very, I guess, guess, uh, and this came out, I think around the same time, uh, even within the year, maybe, um, I can't remember when, when Garden State came out in, in 2004, but um, but I love every everything about Kate Winslet's performance. She's the one I would have had win, and I haven't even seen all the performances nominated in that category. Uh, I, I, it just is a gorgeous story, and it also ends on an ellipsis. I mean, it comes yes. it comes to a place of agreement between these two people, but you also are fully aware of everything that they just went through And that's not going to be easy to put aside. And that is this extended act, uh, you know, beginning on one of their parts, possibly moving into both of their parts of having to remove the memory of the other person. That's not something that they're going to easily be able to get over, but, and maybe they, they don't, maybe if this was a situation like the before trilogy, when we come back, they're not even together anymore. It's entirely possible. Um, but they come to an agreement because they're flawed, as she says, they're flawed, and they are kind of messed up, in other words, uh, that she uses, and, you know, they got some stuff to work out. And, of course, because they're human, and even in this weird, heightened sci-fi story that is very strange and daring and kind of silly because all daring things are silly, that makes sense, um, and it also has a great supporting cast. Kirsten Dunst is heartbreaking in this. Uh, she she's is, one of yeah. these. She's one of the programmers of this thing, uh, and she has a very complex relationship with the Tom Tom Wilkinson character. Elijah Wood having a lot of fun as the other programmer, and um, and Mark Ruffalo. And uh, I just I love everything, every tiny thing. The cinematography is gorgeous. It has this very kind of Lars von Trier Dogma 95 era cinematography kind of feel to it. Very grainy, very, um, uh, uh, just, you know, it captures snow really well. Let's just say that. <laughs> uh, Oh yeah. Uh, and I just, I love everything about it. The weirder it becomes, the more meaningful it becomes, the more devastating it becomes, the more, um, you know, just irresistibly romantic it becomes. Um, and, uh, yeah, just is not only the best, the, the best film of 2004, it's the best film of the 2000s, and it's the best film of these first 20 years of the, dec- of the, of the century for me. That's how much I feel – that's how strongly I feel about this. So I guess that's kind of a spoiler in case I do get to some other movies that I love in these episodes. None of them are going to be as good as this one, and none of, the, none of them have been so far uh, on these episodes or any other episodes that I've talked about. Nothing – uh, from uh, particularly from this century has been as good as this movie for me. Um, it's one of my favorite movies of all time. I'm obviously, I you know, obviously have thanked my brother profusely for blind buying this for me and uh, unintentionally uh, <laughs> and cause he loved it and he thought that I'd seen it and he thought that I'd loved it. And I was like, no, I've never seen it. He's like, Oh man, you'll love it. And it took me three weeks to get to it. And now it's one that I will, I will never forget. Um, I return to it on occasion, probably less often than I should, but on occasion, and it presents it like reveals something new for me every single time. It's one of those types of movies, and it's, in, yeah, it's incredibly it's incredibly perform uh, important to me too. So, all right, well, that's it. Let's let's do a quick recap. Let's do a quick recap. So, um, so just bring us quickly through uh, through from
1: ten to one. All right. So my number ten is The Aviator from Martin Scorsese. Number nine, Anchorman, The Legend of Ron Burgundy from Adam McKay. Number eight, Sean's Dead from Edgar Wright. Number seven, The Terminal from Steven Spielberg. Number six, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, directed by Alfonso Cuaron. Number five is Michael Mann's Collateral. Number four, Before Sunset, helmed by Richard Linklater. Number three, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind from Michelle Gondry. Number two, director Alexander Payne's Sideways. And my number one film in 2004, the directorial debut of Zach Braff, Garnstage.
0: All right. Well, my number 10 was, believe it or not, Anchor to Man, The Legend of Ron Burgundy. Um, my number nine was Mean Girls from Mark Waters. And my number eight was The Born Supremacy, Paul Greengrass's electrifying sequel. My number seven, Michael Mann's Collateral. My number six, The Aviator from Martin Scorsese. My number five, Alexander Payne's Sideways. My number four, Garden State from Zach Braff. My number three was uh, Before Sunset from Richard Linklater. My number two, kind of the hidden gem on my list because it feels like a lot of people haven't seen this. The Girl Next Door. Check this one out, please. My number one, the best film of the year, the best film of its decade, the best film of the century so far for me, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. And it's also I should also say there's a big gap between that and my number two uh so there's a big gap but uh but yeah, so that is my list, and that is it that is it for our episode on the best films in two thousand and four uh Woo-hoo. yeah so this this was this was a lot of fun uh Brian, thank you for coming on this was thank you for yeah, having this was me. fantastic so um before I ask you where you are on the internet. I just want to tell people that it will be a couple of weeks until the next one. Uh, so I don't know if you listen to this because you never reacted it, uh, about it to me, but so I technically, I technically like uh, scheduled you incorrectly for this episode. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I admit whenever I originally like scheduled this, I, I had just been coming off of, it was the March, it was March 20th. Whenever I was coming up with the idea and I recorded that first episode about 2009 and I plotted it out and I was like, okay, so this would be here. This would be here. And 2004 was supposed to be on April 24th. <laughs> and then whenever uh-huh. I, whenever I got closer to it, I did the math wrong because I wasn't thinking about that. I did the math wrong. and I was like, Hey, 17th. And then it got to like Sunday this week or Saturday and I was like, oh no, I did the wrong week. <laughs> so I need to do 2005 <laughs> really quickly. Um, and I did that earlier this week because of that. So I'm getting everything back on track with the schedule just because I'm OCD and I can't do anything else. So I originally did have 2003 being on May 1st and that's when it will be is May 1st and Mark Dusick is going to be back. So that's going to be really exciting. Um, So yeah, I'm, I'm excited for that. I'm excited to to have him return. He joined me for 2007. That was a lot of fun. And um, yeah, so that'll be the next one. It'll be a couple weeks. And then, uh, I mean, we'll see what this whole coronavirus situation is. As of right now, Texas is about to start the reopening procedure uh, in one week from today. So it may be that I, that I kind of scrapped the plan that I had after all of these lists which was to bring in a Criterion collection um, type of thing to the show where I review some movies. It may be that I be go that I'll be going back to work though, in which case I don't know if I'm going to be able to juggle that. But I still will have all of my top tens, um, whatever the case. So I've got Mark Dusick on 2003. I've got a friend of mine named Chad Hill for 2002. Got another friend, Erin Hunley. She's going to uh, join me on uh, 2001, and then I'll be doing 2000 alone. So that's kind of the rundown. It'll run, I guess, through mid to late May. And, uh, yeah, so that's the, that's the schedule for now. I figured that I'd dump that in everybody's lap. Um, obviously if I go back to work, I'll be, I'll be having to rework some schedules, but yeah, uh, for now that's my situation. And, uh, yeah, so, but in the meantime, I am remaining safe. I plan to remain safe even if I go back to work because it's going to be curbside if I even go back to work. I don't know. <laughs> it's a weird situation because of our stupid state. But um but yeah, so it's gonna be an interesting month coming up. Uh so yeah, Brian, where can people find you
1: online? Uh you guys can find me on Twitter simply at Brian Sutfield, B-R-Y-A-N-S-U-D-F-I-E-L-D. And if you wanna watch my YouTube videos, I used to do movie reviews and I do a handful of other stuff. YouTube.com slash Brian Sutfield.
0: Alright, well, guys, you know by now you know by now where to find me. Uh Twitter, Real Joel Copling, R-E-E-L, J O E L, C O P L I N G on Letterboxd if you search my name, although I'm not really updating that a whole lot right now. Um it is it is fairly useful still. And then um my website is on hiatus, but if you want to write, uh, read some older reviews, it's joelonfilm.com. That's about it. So, And then if you want to subscribe to the podcast, it's on a bunch of platforms, including Spotify, iHeartRadio, iTunes, etc. Uh, I can't think of all of them right now because my brain's dead. But, uh, yeah, that's where you can find me online. Guys, it's been great. Thank you for listening. You're all awesome. Uh, I hope you're all staying safe. Please stay safe. It's a scary world out there right now, but please remain inside if you can, because it's going to save lives if you do. And um, you know, I'll be—I'll take care of myself. You guys take care of yourself yourselves. Brian, remember to find a random person and follow from six, in- six inches behind them. I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> don't do that.
1: And <laughs> also, everybody. Also, everybody. To quote, to remind, to remind all of you, wash your hands excessively just like Howard Hughes does in <laughs> yes, The Aviator. Exactly. Like, if there's one character that washes their hands nonstop in the 2004 movie, it's Howard Hughes in The Aviator. <laughs> exactly.
0: <laughs> all right. Well, that'll be it for now. I'll be back in a couple of weeks. Stay tuned. Um, and I'll be back. All right. See y'all later.